Hi, this is Hacking the Afterlife podcast. Uh, welcome to the Guna Woods. Very good. Thank you all for coming out. What a treat to be here. I'm so honored to be back here. It's been maybe a couple of years. And since then, there's Starbucks on every block since the last time I came here. Um, how many are you familiar with... I'm raising my hand. How many are familiar with my work? Oh, okay, great. So we have a lot of people new to this journey that I've been on. So I'm going to give you a little preamble about who I am, my background, what the heck I'm doing up here, why they invited me back. Um, there's that. So I'm Rich Martini. Nice to meet you. And my journey has been unusual, to say the least. And I'll try to be as succinct as I can. How many? How much time do I have? Okay. <laughs> no, two, three. All right. The title of today's talk is Eleven Eleven. All of you, I'm sure, are familiar with hearing people talk about the idea of Eleven Eleven, of, of looking up at your digital clock and seeing the numbers Eleven Eleven and wondering, what's that? Or is it just something unusual, something out of the corner of your eye? So we're going to talk about 1111 and why that is an important key into understanding consciousness. Okay? Today we're going to explain consciousness to you, doubters and scientists in the room. It's an unusual thing to say, but it is what my work's been about. Some uh, 20 or so years ago, a very dear friend of mine, Luana Anders, passed away. Uh, she's an actress, um, close friend, died in my arms. And after about 1996, and after she passed away, she started to visit me. So I had this kind of unusual experience of doubting the idea that somebody I loved and knew was visiting me, but also the idea that she was uh, appearing as a different, a younger person than I knew her, than when I even met her. I could hear her voice sometimes, sometimes I could see her, um, but at the time I was a filmmaker, just making movies and, you know, going about my life. Um, but it kept tugging at my sleeve, like, what is this about? And I thought, well, Luana had been a Buddhist, so maybe Buddhism, maybe that was a key. If I could study Buddhism, maybe I'd understand how is it that she had that ability that I don't have. So, hi. So what I did was I studied uh, Tibetan philosophy with someone named Robert Thurman. Robert Thurman is the head of uh, Tibetan philosophy at Columbia University. His daughter, uh, you may know as Uma. Um, very unusual person. I just happened to be in New York City working on a television show, and I saw that I could audit one of his classes. And so I thought, maybe he knows something. You know, maybe he's got the key. And so I went a deep dive into Buddhist philosophy. You know, you've heard about the Tibetan Book of the Dead, right? Of course. And I thought, well, maybe they know. Maybe they know how it is that my friend Luana is appearing to me and tapping me in the shoulder and sometimes saying things to me. And at the time I thought, well, maybe this is a path. So I went to India and I went to Tibet with Professor Thurman. I made some documentaries there. But ultimately I didn't, they, that, the answer was not there. 
because what happened was in 1997, I was working on the Charles Grodin Show. And uh, you may know Charles, he used to be on CNBC, good friend of Luana's. He brought me out to New York. And one afternoon I was there thinking, you know, how is it that, I mean, if Luana could come visit me in a dream, that means she exists. So where, where is she hanging out? If she can come visit me, how do I go and visit her? And that afternoon I had an out-of-body experience. Are you familiar with that term? I'm sure, yes. And in my case, I've had a few in my lifetime, you know, floating around the room or finding myself on the ceiling, look down at myself, nothing major. But in this case, I shot like a rocket into deep space. I saw Manhattan disappear beneath me, and I was now hurtling in a direction. But I was conscious of the experience of like feeling like, wow, I am traveling so fast that light is melting around me. And then at some point, I took a sharp turn, like a 90 degree turn, and then I felt myself like sort of going through almost like a wormhole is probably the best term to use or something. A black hole, I don't know, but traveling in a sideways direction. And now I was in another realm, another universe, I guess. I don't know how else to describe it, but it's somewhere else. And I could see stars moving, but instead of coming past me this way, they were coming past me this way. That's the only way I can describe it. I was aware of that. And then I suddenly came to an abrupt halt, and she was standing in front of me. She had her eyes closed, and she opened them. And I'm looking at her thinking, uh, is, <laughs> is this? And I heard in my head, you were looking for me, and this is where I am. And before I could go through all the gamut of emotions of like, oh, my friend, here we are, I'm here. But some guy outside my window in Manhattan honked his truck horn. And that truck horn was one of those you know, double-blasted, full-throated. <laughs> but before he took his hand off the horn, I had the experience of being yanked back. So it was like, I'm standing in front of her, and now I'm being pulled almost like by a rubber band, and I came back the other way. And I came, and I saw Manhattan coming up at me the way the movie Powers of Ten used to show that, how uh, you can see from a distance, and it was, I was slammed right into my bed in Manhattan. And I sat up and went, okay, <laughs> what was that? And so from that point, from that experience, you see it's a little different when you have a dream. We know a dream is something that you can sort of dismiss because you wake up and you're like, okay, now I go about my day. When you have an experience, a little harder to dismiss, you can, you can say, well, I dreamt that it was a dream. Could be nothing. But it took me in another path. Luana had said to me before she passed, I feel like I'm in, I think I'm going to another universe. She said that. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, I have this recurring dream that I'm in a classroom somewhere else, in another universe. Everyone's dressed in white. They're speaking a language I've never heard before, but somehow I completely understand. And I thought, okay, that's the morphine drip. You know, she must be hallucinating that. Then the night she passed away, her close friend, living in Hawaii, called me and said, oh, I had the most amazing dream about the wall last night. She was in a classroom in the fourth dimension, she said. 
wearing white. And she seemed incredibly happy. <laughs> I, was, I was like, classroom? What? What? What are you talking about? I mentioned it to her hospice care nurse, and the nurse said that was her recurring dream. She told me about it often. So you put that kind of unusual coincidence of connectivity aside, cut to, oh, I think it was about, um, well, I don't remember the date, but I, I stumbled across the work of Michael Newton. Are you, anybody familiar with his work? Okay, quite a few. Michael Newton was a psychologist in Los Angeles who was a skeptic about the afterlife, didn't believe in it, but he was a good psychologist. He knew how to do hypnotherapy and he was helping clients. And then one day a person spontaneously, uh, who had come in for shoulder pain, spontaneously recalled dying in World War I and started describing it to him. But Newton, because of his skepticism, said, well, where are we? I mean, what, what unit are you in? What's your rank? What's your serial number? What's your mother's maiden name? What house did you grow up in? As Newton described it to me later on, he said this poor guy was writhing on the couch being stabbed and I was you know, questioning everything he was saying. But ultimately Newton, the, the client called him the next day to say, I, thank you, my pain is gone. It's been a lifelong pain in my shoulder and it's gone. My wife wanted to thank wanted me to call you. Newton, that was enough for him. So he contacted the British War Office and said, who, was there a guy in the Fourth Corps? He was a sergeant, this was his name, like, yes. There was a guy. So Newton proved it to himself that this person had existed in this time. And from that point forward, he opened his practice up to seeing people who could do past life regressions. You're all familiar with past life regressions. You may have heard of the Bridie Murphy case and other people. It's a, something that's become more in the zeitgeist, but at this point, it wasn't so much. But as Newton told me, it was in the late 1960s that a woman came into his office and said, um, I'm depressed, I'm lonely, I don't know why, I don't want to live anymore. And so while she was under deep hypnosis, he asked her, he said, let's go to the source of this pain. What, what, what are you relating it to? And she said, oh, I see, I'm, I'm with my soul group. I'm in the afterlife and we're discussing my lifetime and how we're not going to be together in this journey. She said, and I realize that I'm worried about stuff that I don't have to worry about because I'll be with them eventually. And Newton said, wait, wait, where are we? Is this, the, is this the future? Are you saying the future or the past? When did this meeting occur? And she said, I'm seeing it right now. I'm seeing the people in your office. I'm seeing these people. They're all my dearest and closest friends. I don't know them now, but I, I've known them through all my lifetimes. So as Newton put it, he said that was like a splash of cold water in his face, because here he had been a skeptic, and now this person's talking about a between-lives arena. So he basically closed his public practice, and for the next 30 years, only talked to people who could take him there. And he published his book in 1994. It was called Journey of Souls. He wrote four books on the topic. Three were personal experience. The fourth was an edited book where he edited other hypnotherapists that he had trained saying the same things. So ultimately, you have a data set when you start with Michael Newton's work. 7,000 people over the course of his 30-year career saying the same things about the afterlife. What they were saying was is contrary to all science that I'm aware of, 
on some level, except for maybe quantum mechanics. But it's also contrary to most religious theories. So that, that's problematic. Because, you know, here's a guy writing books and he's saying, well, people are saying these things about the afterlife and they don't really fit in what everybody said about it in the past. But I picked up that book, opened it up, and in the first chapter, there was a guy talking about a classroom in the afterlife and everyone was dressed in white. And I thought, okay, well, that's my bell. That's my chance to make a documentary about this topic. As a filmmaker, um, you know, I've written and directed eight theatrical features, none of which you've seen. <laughs> Otherwise, you go, oh, there's Rich Martini. But I don't have to hide from them. They're all wonderful films. I had a great time making them. But at this point in my career, I was thinking, well, you know, I know how to do this. I'll just I'll start a documentary about Michael Newton. So I tracked him down. In, uh, he was given a conference in Chicago. And I asked. And I kind of thought, as any jaded skeptic Hollywood person would, that it's possible they're making this up. People under hypnosis, they want to say this stuff. So I thought, well, if I make a documentary, turn the camera on, it runs for eight hours. Boy, you guys trapped. But the camera will go for eight hours. So why not? Let's just see. So I was surprised when they said, sure, come and film. And I went to this conference in Chicago, and he was conducting a session, and there was a woman under deep hypnosis. And I brought my camera in. It was a room about this size, about this many people, all trainees. And I set my camera up, and I thought, okay, well, this is interesting. And, and now a guy named uh, Paul Orend, who was the former president of the Newton Institute, was conducting the session, and Michael was helping in the background, you know, making notes so people could see it. And this woman remembered a lifetime, her lifetime, this current lifetime, where she grew up, Poughkeepsie. And kind of, you know, then she became a hypnotherapist because she was volunteering. But then, at some point, Paul said, let's, let's go to a previous lifetime that has some significance to this one. And she said, I'm in Auschwitz, and I'm waiting for the showers to come on. And I, as a jaded Hollywood filmmaker, my instant thought was, oh, how convenient. Here I am, I've got a camera, and now we're going to go to the most traumatic human experience that anyone could have. I, I couldn't help myself. But I was smart enough to just watch. She then proceeded to describe in great detail what was happening and the trauma, as you can imagine. But at some point, Paul Oren, and the way this technique that Michael Newton has perfected over his course of his career, these six to eight hour sessions, four to six hour sessions, they went back to a happier time in this woman's life. They went back to her life in Warsaw. By the way, I was able to find her in the public records because she said her name. And she went back to this happy family that she had and what they went through. And then we went quickly to the end of her life and what that was like and what happened after that's the question. What happened after? And she said, I was met by my guide. I found in the work everybody has one. And the guide escorted me back to my loved ones. And there she saw all of her family, all the people who were lost. So there was this kind of reunion for her. 
and, and seeing people and seeing, oh, you know, they're okay. And, and then at some point she went to her, they brought her to the, the guy took her to her council. Everybody has a council. It's, it's a group of individuals who oversee each person's life. <clears throat> no other way to put it. And I can give you chapter and verse on, on, on the people I've heard and talked to that have met their councils. But this was my first experience meeting a council, and she's saying, she said to her council, how could this be? I had the most difficult lifetime. I lost everyone I loved. I lost everything. And then she said, oh, oh, they're showing me something. This is going to be hard to explain. But they're showing me that it was harder to choose to play the role of a perpetrator in this lifetime than a victim. When I heard that sentence, my instinct was to run from the room, to, to jump up from the camera, look around. Uh, did you just hear that? That easily the most politically incorrect thing I've ever heard in my life. But she then continued on. She said, in the choice of this role that I played, I learned profound lessons and courage every day. Every day was a lesson in compassion, in courage, in forgiveness, in understanding nature of humanity and how these things can go through. She said, from my perspective, the people who chose to play the difficult role had a much harder time with it and suffered through other lifetimes because of it. A profound thing to hear and film. And then it became echoed in all of the research. Every session that I filmed, a woman remembered being killed on a boat in 1880. And, and then at the time, she got into the between lines realm and her, she's talking to her guide, and the person who murdered her, the captain of the ship, came to her and said, you have no idea how hard it was to do that. And then she said, oh, I see, I asked him, it was my contract. It was like we had a performance to work out, and I asked him to experience what that was like to be a rotten sailor, and she had been stealing food from her fellow sailors. The ship had run aground, and they had voted her off. So in that moment, she saw that whole journey as almost like a performance on stage. Almost like, okay, I can play the role of the bad guy, or I can play the role of the good guy. I want to learn these lessons. I've seen all of my lifetimes. I know what journey I'm on. I know why I'm here. I understand that. I want to do it again. I want to come back. So that's what Michael Newton stumbled upon. And then it's what I stumbled upon in my camera. And I started filming people relentlessly. <laughs> I filmed 50 sessions since then over the course of a decade. I've done six myself. Because at the end of the first week, I'm, I'm watching people have these profound experiences of recalling not only a previous lifetime, but a between lives realm where they explain why they chose that life and how it related to the current life they're in. How when they saw a past life, fill in the blank, as a prince, princess, as not as Cleopatra, you know, not on the Titanic, but whatever the journey was, then they saw that the reason they chose this life had something to do with the theme, the overall theme of that story. That's what I started to see in the research, and that's kind of what got me addicted to filming it. So I've, like I say, I've filmed over 50 of these sessions, I've done six of my own, 
and I've uh, compared those notes with the notes that Dr. Helen Wambaugh, who I discovered, a psychologist from New Jersey who had done the same work in the 1970s. She had 2,000 of people that she did cases with. They said the same things. I chose my parents. I chose my lifetime. I chose the difficulties in this lifetime because I wanted to learn how to overcome that energy of addiction, of whatever, fill in the blank, whatever that thing is that they wanted to overcome. It reframes the entire journey that we're on. So, in your moderator, your narrator's case, at the end of the first week of filming, they said, well, how about you, Rich? You wanna try one? And I thought, well, I can't, because if I film myself, then I then I become the sub. And then I thought, wait a minute, what am I saying? You know, what's his name? The guy who did uh, Paper Tiger, George Clinton, right? Is that his name, George Clinton? Yeah, Clinton. I met him on an autograph of one of his books. But you know, I could take the journey. And then I thought, wow, this is a perfect way to prove this false. Because I'm not here to find a past life. I don't particularly believe I had one. I'm a jaded skeptic. I can't help it. Very difficult for me not to realize the camera's on, because I'm so used to doing that. I thought, this is perfect. I'll do a session, and I'll prove them wrong. And if they say to me, where are we? And I, and I don't see where we are, I'm not going to make something up. And I'll be, I was prepared to spend four hours saying, I don't, I don't see anything. Sorry, nothing. But just before I went to the session, they, they had said, somebody had said in one of the books, bring questions. Okay, like if you could ask somebody a question on the flip side, what would it be? Any question. I thought, all right. So I made a list of questions, like 10 questions. One of them was a trick question. A trick question that I knew, I was the only person on the planet who knew the answer to that question. And I thought, I'll ask the hypnotherapist that question, that trick question, and if he says an answer, I'll know he's lying. You see? How clever of me. <laughs> Anyways, so now we get to the session. And I'll, get, I'll try to be short with it because, I, you know, it's not about me. I want to be about you guys, but still, this is interesting. So I'm there. We start, you know, counting me down. He's... he's and the way it works is they start you backwards. You know, you, the, what age are you? And you start counting backwards. And then they stop around age 10 or 11 years old. And they say, let's remember something that happened. And I did. I recalled an incident where I cut my finger badly. And I had the experience of seeing my father come out of the house with bandages. And that emotion, I felt it. It's a 12-year-old emotion of seeing your dad saving you. You know, that, that dramatic thing. And I was observant that, wow, that's interesting. That emotion still exists somewhere. And I felt it directly. And then we went back to my first memory. And, and, and that's typically, we'll say, let's go back to your first memory. And I remembered coming from a dark place into a light place and then seeing the face of the doctor holding me up by my feet. And I thought, well, OK, this is weird. I don't have a conscious memory of that. But I could, clear, I could see him clear as a bell green hazel eyes, that goofy metal thing they used to wear back in the 50s, you know, for extra light, uh, you know, his mask on, and he's looking at me like, are you breathing? Um, so I, that was an unusual experience. And then 
Then they say, let's go to a previous lifetime that has some significance to this lifetime. And, I'm, and I don't see anything. And I'm, it's pitch black. Imagine yourself traveling uh, on an ocean at night. You don't have to say a thing. You're moving. Nothing. And I said, I don't see anything. Don't see a thing. <laughs> and I was going to do that for four hours. But this was a very well-trained hypnotherapist, a guy named Jimmy Quast from Maryland, Eastern Hypnosis. He said, okay, well, just look down, Rich. And when he said that, I could see my feet below me, barefoot. I saw a creek. And then, just like in film, I saw like a like pulled back. And I could see this Native American guy standing there, long hair, um, two feathers hanging down. And I consciously said, oh, come on, really? That's what you're going to make up? Ooh, you were a Native American. <laughs> I mean, jaded Hollywood guy. Sorry, he's in there. So, but I said it aloud because that's part of hypnotherapy. Just say whatever comes to your mind. And I said, oh, okay, I think I'm a, I'm a Native, I'm a Lakota, and I'm a medicine man. Um, and he said, what's your name? And I said, it sounds like Tatanka, but it's Watanka. Now, consciously, I'm thinking, oh, come on. You saw Dances with Wolves. You know that Tatanka means buffalo. So obviously, you're making this up. It's funny to have that conversation with yourself. But I allowed it to be said. And he said, Dude, let's go to see your tribe. And I went, I don't think I want to do that. Why is that? And then I saw that everybody had been massacred. Consciously, I was thinking, oh, are you going to say the Union soldiers did this? But no, I said, no, it was the frickin' Huron. And my conscious mind was saying, Huron, they're in upstate New York. Are you, are you, if you're Lakota, that makes you in Montana. Anyway, you see the argument you do? So, but I just spoke, and I said, uh, and then I went, I had an experience. Again, this is where it becomes different. I had the experience of going and feeling a teepee. I've never felt a teepee in this life, but I now I know what it feels like. It's leather, you know, it's raw skin from an animal. So I know what that feels like, even though I've never felt it. And I opened it up and there was a woman lying dead, face down. And I said, they killed, or her throat had been cut. And I said, they've killed my wife and taken my son. When I said that sentence, I had the profound emotion of experiencing what that feels like. That's not an emotion I've ever had in this lifetime, and I hope to never have ever again. But I felt it, and it was profound. And I, my conscious mind was saying, if this is fake, why are you feeling, why are you creating this emotion? This is dark. Wow. Plus, there was no child there. Why would I say that they took my son? Anyway, at some point I saw myself at the end of that life giving up, jumping into a river. I think it might have been Mississippi. I was drunk, had a bottle of whiskey, and hypnotherapist said, where are we? I said, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm gonna go into this river, I'm gonna drown. And he said, why? I mean, do you wanna, do you wanna talk about this? I said, no, they took everything from me. They took my people my culture, my family. <laughs> now, how hilarious is that? That I have a connection to that sentence, and I don't consciously know who these people are. But you can hear it. I am emotionally connected to the sentence. 
So I said, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. I just want to go home. And when I said home, I realized I didn't mean my teepee. I didn't mean Chicago. I meant somewhere else. And it made me remember this woman, the first person I filmed, the woman who, from the Holocaust. When they asked her, where do you want to go after the last moment of life? She said, I just want to go home. Since then, of the 50 people that I filmed, that's how they describe heaven. That's how they call the afterlife. They don't say, I've never heard anybody say, oh, I'm in heaven. I feel like I'm in heaven. I feel like I'm walking around heaven. They say, I feel like I'm home. I feel unconditionally loved. I feel my family. I feel connected. I feel connected to everybody. Joyous. When my father died, the night he died, I heard his voice. I heard. His, I felt his hand on my shoulder. I felt him wake me up before I'd done this research at all. And I heard his voice say, I'm experiencing indescribable joy. Not something my father would have been an architect. Not something I would have heard him say. But then he came the next night and he added details. He gave me names he wanted me to tell my mother. Tell your mother I love her and I'm with. And then he named like six people. And the next day I said to her, Mom, I know this is going to sound weird, but you know, I think I talked to Dad last night. And he said he's with Harry and Kitty. And I named them all. And she said, oh, those are our friends from World War II who died in the war. Those are not names that I know or had ever heard, but she knew. So this is what this talk is about. It's about, it's about finding new information on the flip side. Okay? So that takes us back to Luana and 11.11. How do we get there? Well, as we began, remember I said the idea of a dream might be a way or a gateway into your subconscious and it's into the flip side. A, uh, it could be a near-death event. In this case, my wife had a dream. We were in Chicago, this was last summer. And uh, my wife, we were worried about my daughter, she had a cold, and like, was she gonna be able to fly on the plane the next day? And as my wife went to sleep, she was sort of like saying a prayer, I hope, you know, our daughter is gonna be okay for the flight. And in the dream, Luana, my friend, who my wife had known, who died 20 years ago, shows up and says to my wife, she's gonna be okay. Don't worry about it. Not to worry. <laughs> my wife, who works for attorneys, legal mind, said, how can you be here? You died 20 years ago. And Luana said, Think of 11-11. We meet at the decimals. So the next morning, my wife said, what? What does that mean, 11-11? Does anybody know what that means? We meet at the decimals. Well, my father was an architect. My wife's father is an architect. When you're drawing a hallway and a blueprint, you put the number 11. It means hallway. 
So 1111, those are two hallways. We're on this hallway, they're on that hallway. In order for us to communicate, they've got to slow down their energy to speak to us or alter their energy. For us to hear them, we have to alter our filters, our consciousness, to hear them. How do we do that? Well, asleep, in a dream, that's an easy way to do it. Meditating, calming the mind. We live in a cacophony of noise and chatter. Calming the mind and opening it up and asking questions is a way to communicate. So, we'll get back to Luana in a second. Back to my journey. So I, I ended up doing this session. I ended up writing a book about it. I made a film about it. It's called Flipside. And in that, I show and demonstrate how people under deep hypnosis can talk to loved ones who are no longer on the planet. They can visit previous lifetimes that they've had. They can access memories, like packets of time. They can go back in time and access stuff that happened and learn new information. You're all familiar with Eben Alexander's near-death experience? He met somebody during his near-death event that he'd never seen before, but he knew. He felt he'd known this woman forever, the idea of being home. This woman guided him through all of his journey. When he first saw her, he said, I felt like I've known her forever, but I don't know who this is. You see? Conscious mind and other consciousness. And this woman took him around and showed him all these things. And then, six months later, he got a packet from his birth family because he had been adopted. And the birth family said, we just want you to know about your family. And they sent him a photograph of his sister who died before he was born. And he instantly recognized the woman who had given him the tour of the afterlife. The point of the story is new information. You look for the new information. Lawana saying 11-11, we meet at the decimals. That's not something my wife could ever have conceived as a way for us to talk to the flip side. But she knew that it would come to me, and then I would piece it together. The, I know you're dying to know, what was the trick question? <laughs> the trick question, was I heard, I heard in a dream. Sometimes you hear things in dreams. Did everybody ever hear something in a dream? Sometimes you see things. All right, in this case, I heard in a dream the words vanum populatum. What language is that? Latin, I guessed correctly. I, I don't speak Latin, but I wrote it down. You know, next to your bed, you have a little thing, you write the thing down. And I found that note like weeks later, and I thought, oh, I better look that up. Huh, maybe vanum means something. I look it up, vanity. Vanum means vanity. Okay. Somebody from the flip side telling me to be careful of my, really? Have they not seen me? Populatum. Populatum means to annihilate to utterly destroy, to wipe off the face of the earth. So whoever it is that came, bless you, whoever it is that came up with that term, obviously was a little bit cranky about it. Annihilate vanity. 
in Latin. I live in L.A. Where do I begin? But I knew the meaning of that term. And now you all do. You see? Nobody on the planet went around saying bonum populatum. Nobody. Not. So when I got to this thing and they're asking, I'm asking questions on the flip side, I'm now standing in front of my council and the odd moment was they already knew the questions. They were already answering them. And the hypnotherapist said, oh, I have your list of questions here. And I said, no, they're already answering them. Remember, I had written and jotted them down the night before, and it was like they were going one after the other. Okay, the first question you have, sir, it was blah, 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 blah. And this question about Vanum Populatum, and the whole council, all eight of them, laughed, erupted in laughter. Vanum <laughs> Populatum, that's funny. And the lead counselor said, why don't you ask Ridge what the answer to that is? And when he said it, I saw a little cartoon or a little bubble above in the corner. And it was a bubble of me on the couch filming myself. He was referring to that guy, not me, you see? Because if he, he could have said, you know the answer to that, but he wasn't talking to the temporary me, the rich guy, Rich Martini, the guy in the couch, he was talking to the guy that he's known for many lifetimes. You see? In that answer, I saw that he was, and the other thing was, I realized that I, had, I, the higher version of myself, had given myself the question so that I would puzzle it, knowing that I like puzzles, that I would look it up, that I would figure it out, that I would now go around the planet telling people to annihilate vanity. That's, that was why I said that thing. Now, how can it be that my higher self and my temporary self are together at the same time? Anybody curious about that? Okay, I'm going to tell it to you in just a couple of sentences, and it's based on my research. What people say under deep hypnosis is that, oh, here, I have, like, can use an example, is that we are, are unto ourselves, each a pool of consciousness. If you think of us as like a glass of water, who we are is that pool of consciousness. In the ocean of consciousness, everybody has their own version, right? Everybody has their, everybody in this room has their own pool. But it's all water. So essentially, if you're in that pool, you can feel what all the other molecules are feeling. That apotheosis and epiphany that people have sometimes where they feel connected to everything and everybody, well, that's like opening yourself up to the rest of the water. All right, you with me? So now, if you wanted to be, you wanted to incarnate, you wanted to, I love having a napkin. You take your little napkin and you want to become a human, let's say, and you're gonna choose who you're gonna be. You're gonna choose your parents, this is what people say. Your guides come and they say, now look, this time around, we really think you need to work on that thing that you know you don't seem to handle. You just keep screwing up. So we want you, and you you can say no. You have free will. You can say I don't want to do that. <laughs> Wait a minute. What do you mean? No, I'm telling you the thing you need to work on. And you can say you know I did that in the Viking era. I was that drunk uncle who went around killing everybody. I just don't want to do it again. It bothered me. 
And your friends come to you and say, no, 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 you're the best drunk uncle ever. And you're really good at it, and you've got to play the role. And I'm not going to learn the lessons that I'm supposed to learn unless you play that role of the drunk uncle. And you can just say, have a nice time. You know, I'll watch from the wings. Generally, your loved ones prey upon your goodwill and your compassion. And they say, you know, please, I really need you to play this role. And whatever, it's up to you. You can play the role. It is a role. It's a role. And when you get off stage, you go back home. But as you come to play the role, if you took the whole napkin here, it would blow the circuits. It doesn't fit in the human. It's too much information. It would explode. This is, I've heard this consistently. There's too much energy. The entire structure of the human body would just, it's overpowering. You can only bring a percentage. People generally under hypnosis will say, well, you ask them, how much of the percentage of your conscious energy or soul did you bring to this lifetime? And they'll say, well, I was able to bring terrible tearing. I was able to bring a third. I've been doing this for a long time. Out of the 50 people that I've talked to and the thousands that I've examined, they'll say I bring anywhere from 20 to 40% of their conscious energy. Okay? You with me? So that's how your temporary self, which comes down and becomes Rich Martini, get in there. And I've also heard about the process, how to choose. What One person said it's like flying in a jet plane to get from there to here. It's like flying in a jet plane and you drop down into a Ferrari and you gotta make this incredible maneuver because the plane's going so fast, you drop down into the Ferrari and the Ferrari's moving. And you're landing that cockpit and you gotta reach up and start flipping the dials and some of them don't work like they used to, the way you remember them on a previous lifetime. Oh, that's weird. I thought that would work. And now you're in the Ferrari traveling and you're born. People say consistently they don't show up until the fourth month. They may be there at conception to see it, but they don't actually join the vehicle, the womb, until the fourth month. In Dr. Wamba's research, it wasn't until the sixth month. She said there was no person out of the 2000 that she interviewed that said they got here before six months. So what's the first, what's the fourth month? The first trimester, correct? Just for those doctors out there. So, if something goes wrong between the beginning and the fourth month, no harm, no foul. Wasn't meant to be, wasn't gonna happen. All right, I'm just telling you the research. Not my opinion, not my theory, not my belief. This is what people consistently say. So, now Rich is here. Rich is having his adventure. Rich is doing the things that he's supposed to do. It's not all, it's not a script. Nothing to follow. But there are certain parameters. You're supposed to meet up with her. You're supposed to help this person. You're supposed to talk about the flip side. That's your job. So that might be my job. So let's say, that's Rich. Meanwhile, what are we talking about? Sorry. My metaphor is falling apart. There's the other two-thirds. What's that doing? Playing tiddlywinks? 
having dinner parties? You can find out while you're under deep hypnosis. You have this experience of going back and seeing what you're doing. So I've interviewed a number of people who are talking to their two-thirds. What's it doing up there? It's going to class. Remember the class with all the spiritual people? What kind of classrooms are up there? And I've been to about a dozen. Because I'm talking to somebody and I'm saying, where are we? And they go, I'm in a classroom. And I go, really? What's it look like? And then they describe the classroom. They describe it as we see everything, which is their relation to it. So if I found two people in the same classroom, they'd both tell me different things. One would say, oh, there's a chalkboard and there's tables. There's chairs. There's students all sitting around. They're in a semicircle. The other person might say, we're outside. It's a, and it's the same class. I've talked to teachers, which is really unusual to say. But I ask, can I talk to your teacher? I'll tell you, the first time this happened, and I'm telling you, based on my experience, I've done this dozens of times, but the very first time it happened was that day that I was under deep hypnosis. So I remembered the Indian life of the Lakota Sioux. And by the way, after that uh, session, I looked online to find out what Tonka, I couldn't find Watanka, I couldn't find any of that stuff. Huron, Lakota, couldn't find it. But then I was in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, <laughs> family funeral, and I started talking to this fellow, and he says, oh, I'm a, I'm a historian for the Lakota. And I said, oh, wait, hold, the, hold that thought. I want to tell you this story. And he said, hold on. Don't tell me anything. Just tell me, what were you dressed like? And I described it. He said, how many feathers did you have? And I said, two. He said, were they up? And I said, no, they were down. He said, well, that means you were a medicine man. I did not know that. I said, well, what was this name, Watanka? And he said, well, Wakantanka means the great spirit. That was a derivative of Wakantanka. They were just calling you the holy guy. I said, well, what about the Huron and the Lakota? He said, you're sitting in a spot where they fought for 60 years. All details I did not know. Could not be cryptomnesia, meaning I saw it, read it, heard it, watched it in a movie. All verifiable details after the fact. But ultimately, we go from there into this talking to councils and talking about how much of your, your conscious energy brings. So we're back to this. Two-thirds, what's it doing? Which is annoying. Don't you think that's kind of annoying that part of you, everybody sitting here, is doing something else right now? I would argue, up there they're going, yeah, go to that talk. It'll be good. This guy's going to talk about us. Okay. So I've asked the question, what do you do up there? They go to classrooms. The classrooms are in advanced physics, advanced math, how to move energy from one place to the next, how to create universes, how to create planets in other realms. All kinds of very unusual things. How to create objects out of thin air through intent, through, through meditation, etc., etc. Very provocative things. I've been to visit Akashic libraries. You've heard the term, but I've heard so many variations about what the books are in the library. What the, there are, some refer to them as fractals, geometric shapes, some call them lights, but they contain all the memories, the emotional memories of our previous lifetimes. That's what they are, let's say. You know, paraphrasing. So you can access that information. 
You can, let's say you're in between lives and you're planning your next life, you may go and look in your record, your library of all your lifetimes and go, what am I missing? I've done it all. But, you know, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I never did learn this lesson about letting go of anger. I forgot about that. Okay? When I was visiting my council and asking these questions and getting these wacky answers to Bonham Populatum and stuff like that, the last thing I said, because I was having this experience, this profound experience of talking to people I've never met before but seem to know everything that you could possibly ask. And I said, is there anything I can bring back to people and tell them? And this lead counselor said, tell people to just let them go. And in that moment, I saw that he meant let go of anger, let go of fear, let go of frustration, let go of, don't let go of the things that connect you to other humans, but let go of everything that's not about who you are as a person. I mean, it's a profound, simple sentence, but since that day, 14 years, 15 years ago, I've heard it consistently. Interviewing people I've never met before, they're talking to their council, and I ask the same question, is there anything I can pass along to people back here? And they say, a variation of let go, relax, everything's gonna be okay, stop worrying. <laughs> That's, I mean, it's a hard thing to say. You know, you're in the middle of deep space talking to somebody and they go, no, nah, don't worry about it. And you're like, wait, well, how do we get home? Don't worry, it's fine, don't worry about it. All right, so here we are, I'm giving you a, an actual visual lesson of how consciousness works, okay? Here's the two thirds, right? So now, what's the two-thirds doing? And I've asked this question. Well, could, could the two-thirds be doing some other lifetime? Yes. Where? Somewhere else. Could be on Earth. Could be in another realm. I only say that because they've said it. A woman I was talking to recently said, well, I'm actually also currently, and this is, this, I want to tell you, this is not a woman under hypnosis. We're just having a conversation, and within an hour, she's like accessing this information. And she says, well, I also concurrently have a lifetime. I'm leading right now on another planet in another realm. And I said, oh, is that like a fun life, or like what's that like? And she said, well, we lived for 5,000 years. I said, oh. Okay, so, so, so you're saying that's your regular lifetime, and this is the te temporary one. She's correct. I said, okay, well, how much of your energy is there? She said, 20%. So when you ask, like, well, how can that be? And I did ask, you know, how does this work? And, and one of the guides said, do the math. <laughs> okay. All right, so now your life is finished. You've gotten to the very end. Your filters are starting to drift away. We'll talk about filters in a second. And what happens? Your body fails. The vehicle, the sports uniform you're wearing, the equipment, the cleats, shoulder pads, put them in the wash. They're done. The 30% of you that existed, it's got to come back. And it comes back. And then people have this experience consistently in all the research I've done where they have a re-energizing 
moment where they go back to what they call a place of healing. Sometimes they see it as inside. Sometimes they see it outside. Some of you know what I'm talking about because as you're falling asleep, you have this dream or a memory of some beautiful place somewhere. Feels comfortable. Feels like home. I talked to somebody yesterday who said, I have this recurring dream. That's a place of healing. And what happens? Your energy now gets rid of all the stuff that was bothering you and a problem, and eventually you're back to being you. You're carrying all the memories that you had in this lifetime, but you're also accessing all the memories you've had in all the other lifetimes. Plus the people that are in your soul group. Everybody has one, and usually from 3 to 22 people, that's what Newton found. Those are people, and the, how do you know who's in your soul group? It's nothing to stress over. Like, you can also, you can think, who do I not want to be in my soul group? And sometimes that's what's distressing is because you're like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> Uncle Pete, I thought I got rid of you. And then Uncle Pete is up there going, you asked, you know, you did ask me to be your drunk uncle. Okay. But when you see those people that have been with you for many lifetimes, they know you. They've seen you through many lifetimes. They know the troubles you've been through. There is this feeling of unconditional love. There is this feeling of like going into university and you start as a freshman and you go through the classes and it's difficult and the teachers are mean or difficult. Some classes are really hard and some you fail. But then you go back and you take it again and you take it again and again and again. And all these people that are in your class, you know them. You've seen them. You've seen them cry and laugh and eat potato chips in the middle of the night. But at the end, you graduate. You graduate. You don't go into an ether form. I've asked, what happens? What do you get when you graduate? And I had a guide say it to me this way. He said, Rich, I've lived all my lifetimes, and that's how I became a guide. At the end of all my lifetimes, I graduated to becoming a guide. And he said, and my graduation gift was you. So, when I was just a little teeny weeny weeny idea of a conscious entity coming along, and apparently conscious, conscious entities come into existence at any time. They, they're not related to our physical realm. So they can come in at any time. It's never an issue about how many people are on the planet. You can just keep creating them. Or you have people who claim that they incarnate in other planets. Uh, Michael Newton, in my interview with him, I said, so how many of your clients claimed that they lived on other planets. He said 10%, so 700 out of 7,000. But I, my interview with um, Pete Smith in It's a Wonderful Afterlife, he said that number has risen to 30%. That means one out of three people who go to see a hypnotherapist trained by a Michael Newton Institute worldwide claim under hypnosis they're recalling a lifetime that wasn't here. One out of three. So the odds are one out of three people here in this room is an alien. <laughs> so, and the reason I say it that way, it's a joke. But, you know, when you fall into a place where you can ask questions, get answers, I ask a lot of questions. And one of them is, and I've heard this specifically from 
somebody who said, stop calling people aliens. Everyone's an alien. They all choose to incarnate. If you have respect the fact that they've chosen their incarnation, whether it's here or somewhere else, then you'll open up your mind to how reality works. Interesting. So what, so what happened was, when I finished my documentary about Michael Newton, uh, put it out, and somebody invited me to come and talk. One of these events, actually in Virginia Beach. And someone in the audience came up and said, you should go on that show Coast to Coast Radio. I said, what's that? He said, oh yeah, that's right up your alley. <laughs> and he wrote a letter to the producer at Coast to Coast. The next thing you know, I get a call. Can you come on the show? I'm gonna be on next week, actually. And I've been on seven times. Every time I go on the, the dang show, my books jump to number one. So, you know, why, I don't know. I think it's not because of me, I think it's because people need to hear that information. But once I started doing that, and then I started talking to scientists about consciousness, how does consciousness work? How does this relate to what people are saying under deep hypnosis? And then they would say, well, deep hypnosis, that's, a, that's problematic in terms of science. And then I started to show and demonstrate you don't need hypnosis in order to access this information. You can just talk to people Ask them questions. You'd be surprised. If you go on YouTube to Martini Prods, I don't know why I chose that name, but Martini Prods, you'll see examples of me talking to people. Dr. Drew, you've heard of Dr. Drew? So Dr. Drew's wife has a blog, blog radio show. She invited me on, we were talking about this stuff, and Drew was there, and I said, I know he's a skeptic, I know he doesn't believe in the afterlife, but I said, do you want to explore? Do you want to try? Do you want to test it out? He was like, yeah, sure. I don't believe it. And so if you search my name and Dr. Drew, you'll find in 15 minutes, I had him talking about a previous lifetime that he had no access to. And then at some point, I said to his guide, which he wasn't consciously aware, but he's like, yeah, there's somebody here. Just when you said that, when you said, do I have a guide? He said, yeah. Um, the guy, I asked the guy, can you take Drew in to visit with his council? And Drew said, what's a council? And I said, I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> I was talking to his guy. Because it, the temporary Drew here isn't aware of his council. But the guy knows what I'm talking about. And within a few seconds, he's now introducing us to, a. he's got, I think it was 12 people. And we talked to maybe three or four of them. People that Drew has never seen consciously, but is in his mind's eyes saying, okay, there's a woman here, her name is this, and da 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 da, da. And now I'm asking council members, why are you allowing Drew to see this? And they always say some, for a variation of, well, it's time. It's time for him to understand that this is how the nature of reality works. So, as a result of that, I, start, I got a call from a medium. Um, this woman, and at the time I thought of the term psychic medium as, you know, gypsy, you know, crystal ball, like anybody would, and I wanted to tell her, no, I'm not, it's not interested, it's not, a, my, it's not my thing, and thank you, I appreciate you're a fan, but it's just not my thing. But as I talked to her on the phone, again, now I've learned, when people contact and reach out to me, it's for another reason. 
I try to allow that that's possible. I said, so what kind of work do you do? She said, well, her name is Jennifer Schaefer. She's in Manhattan Beach. She said, I work with law enforcement on missing person cases. And then she named a couple of cases I was aware of. And I said, oh, well, that's interesting. Um, Colorado Bureau of Investigation, uh, Phil Bratton, former New York commissioner, had used her talents on a case and she had solved it. And I said, oh, wait a second, that's interesting. And for 30 years, I've been working on a particular case about a missing person. Do you want to work on it with me? She said, I'd love to. So I took my camera and my tripod over to her office and I spent three hours interviewing somebody no longer on the planet who's been missing for 70 years. I know more about this person than anybody that I've ever met. I've worked on every feature film about this person. So I'm very familiar with what happened to Amelia Earhart. I've been to Saipan. I've been to the cell that she was incarcerated in. I've seen pieces of her plane that were recovered from Amelia Toll. I've seen physical evidence of everything that I've studied and researched about her, including how she was arrested, who arrested her, why she was put in prison, and how she died there. Eyewitnesses. I have at least a dozen US Marines on camera, and I have over 200 people on camera. I wish I could say I should be famous for this information. I'm not. It doesn't matter. I'm not interested in that. But I'm just telling you, in my life, I've spent 30 years researching a topic, and I know the answers, OK? Let's just put it that way. And studios have paid me a lot of money for my research. So now I'm in a room with a medium, and I'm interviewing somebody she doesn't know anything about. But whoever I'm talking to knows exactly what I know. Everything that I've learned that's not public knowledge, her sexuality, who she was in love with, why she had an open marriage, stuff that people aren't aware of, I was able to get her to confirm over and over and over again until we got to the piece of new information. So I'm three hours this interview is going on, and I say at the end of the interview, so Amelia, tell us how did you die? Because I've heard reports of you were shot, which was true about a US pilot had been shot down. He was shot. I heard that you were beheaded, which was true about a US pilot who had been shot down, and they beheaded him. But I had two eyewitness reports who were saying, well, I saw a pilot who had been arrested and they were executed in this manner. So I said, which was you? Was one of you you? And she said, no, she died of dysentery. And I went, okay, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure you don't want to change that? Because I've got people. <clears throat> she said, no, and the two GIs who dug me up only found my arm. That sentence, coming from a medium I had just met, I knew that in 1963, Fred Gerner, CBS correspondent, had been to Saipan, had interviewed these two GIs who dug her up. I knew those two guys, Hanson and Burke. They had been verified by numerous different sources that these two guys claimed that during the middle of the war, they had to go out and dig up a body, and they told, their CO told them, it's Amelia Earhart, don't ask me any questions. So I knew that these guys existed, but here was Amelia saying, when those two, GIs dug me up, they only found my arm. 
10 minutes after that interview, I was driving away from Jennifer Shaver's office, my head spinning, and the phone rang, and it was a former NTSB investigator in Seattle who had just been given privy to documents, tons, a trove of documents about Earhart's case from a federal investigator. And he said, Rich, I just wanted to call you. I wanted to tell you everything that you've told me is in here. How she was arrested, how the Japanese took her plane, how they hit it, how these GIs had found her plane, how they found her briefcase. All of this is in your, that was in your research, it's true. He said, but I just saw that when they dug her up, they only found her arm. 10 minutes, you know, mind blown. Six months later, I found a, uh, an actual verification of that. I found a UPI article in Chicago Tribune where they interviewed these two GIs who claimed to have dug her up. And off camera, they said, you know, the truth is when we dug her up, we only found a partial rib cage and an arm. So when you get new information from the flip side, you really have to pay attention. Try not to judge it. People have said to me, why don't you go back to Saipan and you know, prove? And, I, and I, my point is I don't, I don't have to prove. <laughs> Amelia, Amelia herself proved to me that she still exists. I don't have to go find her bones. I find that silly. What's more important? Finding that Amelia Earhart was buried somewhere else on Saipan or that everybody we ever loved still exists. Some part of their conscious energy, actually the majority of it, still there. You can talk to everyone you ever loved who's not here, okay? So now I'm gonna tell you how to do that. Okay, you ready? You've got 20 minutes. 20? Okay, very good. Well, I don't think we might not, we might go. But this is important. So, cut to, I started filming sessions with Jennifer Schaefer. She's really good. It's like having a cell phone, right? To the flip side. Because I sit with her, I turn the camera on. Who do I want to talk to? Hello. Can I talk to uh, Orson Welles, please? <clears throat> please hold. All right. All right. I'm waiting. What I found was that Luana, my dear friend, on the flip side, was helping us to access people over there. She started with friends that I knew, people that, friends of mine who had died, like Bill Paxton, the actor. She started by saying, Billy's here, he wants to talk to you. Now I knew Billy, I knew him when his career started, so I know everything about him. So I asked, you know, how do we meet, if this is you? How do we meet? Where do we meet? What were you doing? Et cetera, et cetera. And ultimately, I had three different mediums asking the same questions, and they all said the exact same things. Verifying for me, let's just put it that way, maybe not for everybody else, because I could be lying, Bill could be lying, whatever, somebody could be lying, but verifying for me, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that this was my friend Billy. The actor Harry Dean Stanton passed away. I knew Harry through Luana. Harry came through Clairsbell with Jennifer. He said, look, my memorial service is coming up this week. I want you to go tell people things. Harry, you were a famous atheist. You were a skeptic. All of your friends knew that you didn't believe in the afterlife. You really think I'm going to go to your memorial and say, Harry told me to tell you. He said, yeah, tell them to believe in the afterlife. I said, Harry, 
They're not going to do that. He said, well, then tell them to believe in the possibility of an afterlife, and they won't waste another minute of their lives arguing about it like I did. Okay. I said, do you have any messages? So he gave me three specific messages. Three different people who were at his memorial service. Each one of them private health issues. One person said, you need to go get your prostate checked. One person was, your arthritis medicine is making you dry out. You need to start drinking water. One was, that child that we had, that we lost, is with me now. Three separate messages. Now imagine, you know, some strange guy coming up to you going, you need to get your prostate checked. Harry told me. So I, can't, I cannot tell you who these people were, but I can tell you that I went to that memorial service and I went to each person privately. And each person screamed or had a reaction to it. The prostate guy said, his, his assistant said to me, he went for his first treatment this morning. So that was accurate. He had prostate cancer. So the arthritis person, his son, jumped out of his chair and said, I tell him this every day. The arthritis medicine is drying him out. And the girl who had had a kid with hair just screamed. And she said, I knew it. I knew it. I knew there was an afterlife. So my point is, these messages may not be for everybody. And, you know, even me telling them, I, you know, I can't really get into the details of who said to who to what. I can't prove it, which is fine. It's just okay. But I'm just, my point is, I've been working with this medium for now maybe four years, and every Thursday for two hours, I sit and interview somebody on the flip side. And like I say, it started off with friends, and then it became friends of friends, and then it became strangers, and then I would be sitting in my kitchen in Santa Monica, and I would hear a voice of somebody familiar on the flip side who had died recently, and I would hear, I understand you're the person I need to talk to. And I would say, get in line. <laughs> because I'm not, I'm not a medium. I can't, I can't, you know, I have too much going on in my head for me to sit down and go, did I hear that right? So I use Jennifer. She's my cell phone. I kid you not. I go to her session, and on the way there, I think of the person that I thought that I heard, and I pull up, turn on the camera, and I go, okay, Lou, who wants to talk to us today? And she'll say the name of the person. So-and-so is here. I'll give you an example. John McCain is here. <laughs> and I went... When I heard his voice saying, I think, I understand you're the guy I need to talk to, I was like, what? Don't, don't, don't talk to me. I don't know you. I don't, I don't know him from Adam. I don't know anybody who knows him. But at the session, I said, so why are you bugging me, buddy? He said, because I, you need to reach out to my daughter and tell her something private. I said, you know, I don't know your daughter, Megan. I don't know her. I don't know anybody who knows her. You do that. I'm arguing. You go and do that. That's your job. You go find somebody that she knows that's a medium or a psychic and, you know, your dad wants. And he said, no, you're going to tell her this. And then he, I said, look, I need more detail. I need something that will prove to her beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is you. And so he gave me stuff. He was like, oh, I bought her this teddy bear that she has. It's this color and blah, 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 blah. Fill in the blank. What he wanted to tell her was to run for governor of Arizona. 
So all I can do is I write it up, I post it on my blog, richmartini.com, and if she finds it, she reads it, great. If she doesn't, there's nothing I can do. But I can tell you, in the past year, I've passed along messages from people on the flip side. And they're like, you need to reach out to my son because the attorney that's representing the state is screwing him. I'll give you one. Um, so Jennifer and I, I, Paul Allen passed away, you know, the head of Microsoft. And I thought, oh, that's, I don't know him. But you know, that's an interesting cat. What's it like on the flip side for the founder of Microsoft? And I said to Jennifer, um, and on the way to the session, I named three people that we had already talked to that I thought that knew him. I thought, well, that's the way. I'll ask so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so. They can help. So I get to this restaurant where we do these sessions, and she named all three. First person, she said, I'm seeing so-and-so. I said, good, because I asked them to help. Then she went, I'm seeing so All three, right in a row, bang. And then I said, okay, I want to talk to this guy. I didn't tell her who it was. She said, you know, I'm seeing uh, Steve Jobs. That was one of the people I asked. I said, well, they're friends. And then eventually she got it. He, he owns a football team? Yeah, Seattle Seahawks. So now I'm asking the same questions I asked, which is who was there to greet you on the, cross, on the flip side when you crossed over? What are you doing now? Who are you hanging out with? What do you miss? Anything you regret? Simple questions. Because they're not about politics, right? They're not about their life. They're not about, but they're about what their experience is now. I try to focus on that. So I said, who was there to greet you when you crossed over? And Jennifer said, I'm seeing a football player. Really? What's he look like? I'm seeing the number five, and he's Polynesian. I'm seeing another football player. He's African-American. I'm seeing, I think she said five and two. Two and five. Football players. I said, are these guys Seattle Seahawks? No. Who are they? Let's ask the guy. Let's ask the Polynesian dude. Who are you? He said, I'm here to thank him. I wanted to thank him for his research into brain trauma. And I said, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think I know who this is. I said, let's focus on the African-American for a second. Who's he? His name, it's... Begins with a D, Dave? I knew who that was. Dave Dorsey, Chicago Bear, killed himself. CTE, suffering from CTE. The other guy, you know who he is. Junior Seau, killed himself a year later, suffering from CTE. I'm saying, Paul Allen, did you know Junior Seau? Did you know Dave Dorsey? He's saying, well, I, I knew them in the sense that I felt responsible for them. I felt like I have this brain institute and they need to help football players who are suffering from it. I kid you not. And then Jennifer said, he's showing me a, they're showing me a quarterback. They want you to know about a quarterback. And I'm thinking that he has CTE. And she goes, um, Joe Montana. And I go, no, no, I don't think, I think Joe Montana's okay. I don't think he's got CTE. But he's a quarterback, his name is Joe. Okay, this is how they communicate. They show you something that relates to something. 
So it's a quarterback named Joe. This is what I figured this out later. Quarterback named Joe. That's why they were showing her Joe Montana. They showed her friend Tarkington, a quarterback who does have CTE. But they kept showing quarterback, and I couldn't get it because I'd look it up after the session and I'd go, I can't find anybody. So then, the experimenter that I am, I said, well, let's just try an experiment. And I reached out to Gina Seau, Junior's wife. I had seen her on ESPN talking about CTE. You know about CTE, right? You know, that's the brain trauma issue. And she was talking about how Junior had suffered and how the family had suffered and all these things had gone wrong, et cetera, et cetera. And so I reached out to her on social media and I said, Gina, I don't know you, but I think your husband came to visit me with this medium. And so she contacted me. And I said, and she said, well, I'd love to come up to Santa Monica, wherever you are, and watch you guys talk to him. And I said, well, let's try an experiment. Why don't, why don't we do this? I'll invite, I'll film this. You come up to Jennifer's office, I will not tell her who you are. And let's just see if Junior shows up. All right? You like that experiment? Gina Seau, he died, I don't know, seven years ago, eight years ago. She drives up to Manhattan Beach, we go into the office, Jennifer does not know her at all. Doesn't know who she is, doesn't know why she's there. All she knows is that I'm her pal who has decided to try this experiment. And we spent two hours talking to Junior Seau. He knew what was in her purse. He knew what she put on to wear, the clothes that she was gonna change into that she changed. He knew all the details of what had happened. You know, she sat there listening to Junior apologize profusely for all the things that he had done and the mistakes he had made. I mean, it was very profound. But Jennifer still didn't realize who this guy was. She just knew it was the husband had come through for this woman. And somewhere in the middle of the interview, I said, Junior, show her why we're here today. And Jennifer just perked up and went, oh my God, it's the football player that we met the other day. She didn't realize it until that moment. Because he showed her, I was there to greet Paul Allen. You with me? Pretty profound. So now a week later, I, Jennifer and I do a session. She calls me up out of the blue and says, look, I, I need you to meet. I don't know, I'm getting a feeling we're supposed to do a session. I don't know why. I said, okay. So I turn the camera on. She says, uh, Paul Allen's here. That guy we interviewed, though, she didn't know his name. The Microsoft guy? Yeah. Why is he here? He wants us to talk to Junior. Oh, all right, what do we miss, Junior? We talked to you and your wife for two hours. No, he doesn't, want to, he doesn't want us to talk to Junior, he wants to talk to Dave. Dave Dewerson, the Chicago Bear. Dave was the first CTE case. And he came through and he said, you need to research Joe Namath. Which I did. If you Google Joe Namath and CTE, you'll find out that Joe Namath has cured CTE. He was suffering from it. He found hyperbaric oxygen treatment in Jupiter, Florida, and he cured himself of it. And he's been going on talk shows and talking about it. Dave Dewerson, from the flip side, and Junior Seau wanted me to know that they applaud what he's doing and that this is a way to cure people. They're concerned about their friends. Dave, Dave Dewars had talked about the fridge. 
You probably are familiar with them, but Jennifer was not. I said, do you know who the fridge is? She said, I, I think he played for Pittsburgh. I said, no, he was Dave Dorsen's teammate on the World Championship Bear team in Chicago. And he was teasing the story of the fridge and how the fridge had given CTE to quite a few people because he was so big. But he's suffering from it as well. So this was a case, and this is why this research is important. It's not just that we can talk to our loved ones, which is important. But we can talk to scientists. We can talk to people who used to be here. We can talk to people about how to save the planet. We can ask people questions about what do we do to help ourselves? How do we cure CTE? How do we cure cancer? That's why this is important. It's not just so that I can tell stories about our journey and our path, which is great, it's fun, but no. We can access people who have greater knowledge than us. In some cases, it is us. So in, a, in the middle of a session recently, I had this experience of talking, let's just say it this way, talking to an entity that was a tree. During the course of a session, I've heard many people say, oh, I'm seeing this grove of trees. And I asked them, well, can you go up and can you hug the tree? And they always say the same thing. I'm feeling an energy within the tree, like there's a person here. And then I'll ask, well, can we ask the tree some questions? And I always get the same answers, which is humans used to be able to talk to us, but they no longer can. Unusual thing to hear, but I've heard it consistently. And I recently said to this tree, let's call it a tree for lack of a better term, how do we save our planet? And his answer was, plant a trillion trees. Not a billion. Plant a trillion trees. And then he said, because that'll balance the oxygen that's on the planet, it will cool the planet down because of the carbon that's taken away from the atmosphere. So he gave me a science answer and a logical answer. Plant a trillion trees. So if you take away anything from today's talk, other than 1111, we meet at the decimals, that's the bridge where you can talk to your relatives and loved ones, it's figure out how to plant a trillion trees. I saw yesterday that New Zealand committed to planting a billion. So a thousand times a billion is what we can do to save the planet. See, I told you I was going to take you on an odd place today. Okay, any questions? How's that? Wait, let's hear it for Rich Martinez. Sorry. I think that's right. Isn't that the time I have allotted? Very good. Go ahead. Did you say you were going to show us how to talk to everyone you know? Oh, yeah, I was. All right, let me tell you. I, I, you're right. That's the most freaking important thing I can say. And that'll take really not more than a few minutes. But it came during a session with Jennifer, and we were sitting in Manhattan Beach, and she looked at me and said, Morton is here. And I said, Morton? Who's Morton? She said, the guy you made the documentary about. I said, you mean Michael Newton? 
She said, oh, yeah, him. Now think about that. If she was trying to make that up, wouldn't she have got his name right? I said, Morton is here. He had passed away about a month earlier. I, and I had only met him once. I shared some emails with him. Lovely guy. But I'm a little curious. I'm in Manhattan Beach in a restaurant. Michael, what is it you want to tell me? He said he's helping people to communicate from one side to the next. And I said, let me clarify. You mean you're helping people here to communicate with their loved ones back there? And he said, no, the other way around. He's helping people over there to communicate with people here. OK? I said, look, I'm going to be on Coast to Coast uh, this weekend. Is there a one, two, three? Can you give me a one, two, three? And he said, yes. Say their name. Ask your questions. Just two. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean? Do you say their name aloud or in your head? He said, it doesn't matter, Richard. Okay. And then I said, so when you ask a question, how do you know the difference between you're making it up, you're, you're, you're hearing what you want to hear, and an actual connection? He said, when you hear the answer to your question before you can form the question, then you'll know you have a connection. Three simple, and I've tried that method since then. So here's what I recommend. Just because saying it sounds sounds so simple, how could that be? Take out a photograph of your loved one, someone you want to communicate with. When you look at the photograph, try to set aside your emotions associated with that person. But remember when the photograph was taken. Who was there? Who took the picture? What was it like before you got in the room? What were people saying? What is the sound like? It's helping you to focus on their frequency. And then remember what the tonality of their voice is, the timbre. What does their voice sound like? You all know what your loved one's voices sound like. And even if you don't remember it so well, you have an idea. somewhere in your mind you do have a memory. Focus on that. Try to focus on the photograph as if it was a portal that you could talk to them. Now ask them questions. To begin with, ask simple questions. Ask questions that have yes or no answers. How are you? If you don't hear anything, allow that they're going to answer you with, you can say, just yes, nod, no, I don't know, or no answer. Those are your four choices. So you can all do this right now, really. Picture somebody that you loved in your lifetime, who's no longer on the planet. Can you do it? Put your hand up if you can. Okay, just, it's a game. Try not to take it too seriously. We're playing a game. We're playing an imaginary game. Allow that it's your imagination. Because of course, you're ideating the moment. So it is your imagination, so allow it, just allow it. So picture them in your mind's eye. Picture them sitting across from you in a happy state. <laughs> that helps. If they were cranky when they were leaving, that's not so good. But in a happy state. And now start to look at them very carefully. Look at their clothing. Can you do that? See what they're wearing. Whatever comes to mind, don't judge it. If it's an outfit that you know, great. If it's an outfit that they're making up, that's fine too. Don't judge it. Are they wearing jewelry? Are they wearing a watch? Look carefully. 
What is it about them that's that's you remember? Take a look at their shoes. What kind of shoes are they wearing? Are they cowboy boots? Are they tennis shoes? Are they regular shoes? It could be exactly as you remember this moment in time. That's fine. Allow it. It's okay. But now you do something different. You switch from past tense to present tense. It's very simple. Reach out in your mind's eye and take a hold of their hands. Just allow that. Just, you don't have to, you, you can close your eyes or not. Just reach out in your loved one's hands. You know what they feel like. Are they soft? Are they hard? Are they warm? Are they cold? Whatever they are, just allow them. It could be your memory of their hands. It's okay. Sometimes you feel cold hands and you warm them up. What I do is if somebody says my their hands are cold, I say, okay, let's ask them, can you warm up your hands? And they always say, yeah, I feel like it's warmer now. That's just to show that you can make this kind of a connection. And now it's a very simple thing where you start to ask simple questions that only require yes, no, I don't know, or maybe. So you can ask, how are you? Whatever comes into your mind, allow that to be. You can ask, are you really here? And they may laugh at that, they may shrug, they may shake their head, or they may say yes. Whatever it is, you're getting them used to the fact that you're able to focus on them. And then you get to questions that you wanted to know the answer to. Where have you been? How come I don't see you more often? Okay. Then you get to more complex questions. But there are questions that they know the answer to that you do not. Who was there to greet you when you crossed over? Just ask. An image will come into your mind. And you will then say, oh, well, yeah, that's who I would have thought them that would have been created them. But sometimes not. Sometimes it's not the person. It's Uncle Pete. I thought I got rid of you, Uncle Pete. Uncle Pete is there. Something, whatever, you try not to judge what you see or hear. Just don't judge the answer. Because they're trying, they're trying to communicate with you. If I've heard this once, I've heard it a thousand times. We know we exist. It's annoying that our loved ones don't believe we exist. We spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to connect with them. And they spend a lot of time denying that we are connecting with them. That's my imagination, I had a dream, I don't know why that happened. So the, so the more complicated questions are, who is there to greet you? What do you miss about being on the planet? If anything. What's your favorite food, if anything? Who are you hanging out with, if anybody? What is it you want me to tell your loved ones or friends or family? In a simple way. You'll hear something. My point is, you do this as an exercise. You may not get anything now. You may get something now. Try not to judge either one of those. Just practice it the way you would do a push-up. If you do a push-up every morning, one, after a hundred mornings, the arms start to get a little stronger. 
If you meditate, and meditation could be just doing this exercise, every day for five minutes, asking questions, telling whatever it is, sharing details, and the next time you have a party, toast them in present tense. Next time their loved ones are in the room, talk about them in present tense. You can say, you can preface it by saying, you know, I had a dream the other day. And nobody cares what you say after that. You know, I had a dream the other day. I was with Uncle Pete. And Uncle Pete told me to tell you, you need to get a new car. And you got to stop goofing around with that. Whatever it is you want to find. You throw in, I had a dream the other day. Everybody, nobody cares. If you say, I was meditating at the Uncle Pete, and he said the following, you know, they're going to run for the hills. My point is, just allow that you can communicate. And it doesn't have to happen today. It doesn't have to happen tomorrow. It could happen in 100 days. I'll tell you, yesterday I had a conversation with a fella. Uh, I've never met him before. He lives in Palm Springs. He read about this method. He tried. He said he tried. His white wife had passed away two years ago. And he didn't hear anything. And he was trying and trying and trying. And he just you know, he felt frustrated because every time he'd meditate, nothing. You know, he would see her like with her arms folded or whatever. And then he said, I was walking on the beach and suddenly she was there. And I could feel her head on my shoulder. And I could feel her. And I, I didn't judge it. I just allowed it. And since then, he's had ongoing conversations with her. And yesterday we did one of these sessions where I just talked him into the flip side and we had a conversation with him. He learned new things. So it's not something that it's not something that I know how to do, but it's something Michael Newton told me how to do. This has been Hacking the Afterlife Podcast. For more information, jenniferschafer.com, richmartini.com, or martinizone.com. To watch the film Hacking the Afterlife, go to Gaia.com via Amazon Prime. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you on the flip side.